The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So to get us started here, um, I'm going to do something a little bit risky. Could put my marriage at risk, so prayers are appreciated. I'm going to talk about essential oils. (laughs) Now, if you don't know what essential oils are... I'm not about to try and explain this to you, but it's risky for me to talk about them because my wife and I have very differing opinions when it comes to all things oil. And and, and so to to try and keep myself like in the safe zone, I'm only going to talk about one aspect of essential oils, namely their smell. Now, Holly and I have differing opinions concerning how these things smell, and I'm allowed, I'm allowed to have my own opinion on this matter because it's my nose, and I get to interpret what it smells, and Holly loves the smell of essential oils. It smells clean. It smells healthy. I mean, to her, it's essentially a life-giving fragrance because that's what these oils are supposed to do. They're supposed to promote healthy living, so it's a fragrance of life. To me, not so much. Some of them are okay, but most of them bother my nose. They tickle my throat. They make me cough. I don't like it. And if you can't tell, if you don't know me, if you know me, then you know this. I can sometimes be just a tad dramatic. So on occasion, I may or may not claim that this stuff smells like death. (laughs) Now, here's the deal. It's the same fragrance, but to one of us, it's a fragrance of life. And to the other, it's a fragrance of, of death. The passage that we just heard read, the passage in front of us this morning, is like that. It has an aroma to it. If you let your senses get inside of this text, you don't just read the passage. You don't just hear it. You, you smell it. And to some of us, it smells like life. And to some, it smells like death. The question for all of us to wrestle with this morning is what do we smell within these pages? The fragrance of life or death. And and depending upon what we sense, what we smell here, what, what does that reveal about the fragrance of our own lives? Those are the two questions that I want you to keep in your mind, that I want you to wrestle with as we walk throughout this text this morning. What do we smell within these pages, life or death? And what does that say about the fragrance of our own Lives. Those are our questions. Let's jump right into the text to tackle them. We're going to begin in verses 53 through verse 57 of chapter 11. It says, so from that day on, they, that's the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the Pharisees, about 70 of them. From that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. Why? Is he scared? No, he's not scared. He went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. You had to be pure to participate in the festival of the Passover. And some of these purification rites could take as long as a week. So people are there a week in advance. And they're looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? I mean, is he scared? He's withdrawn about a day's journey from Jerusalem getting away from those who want to kill him. 
Is he scared or is he just sovereign over the hour of his death? No one will take his life from him. He will lay it down of his own accord when and where he chooses. They're asking, will he come to the feast at all? Verse 57. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. So... All this animosity towards Jesus, if you haven't been with us over the past couple of weeks, it may not make much sense, but if you actually walk back through John chapter 11, what has just happened is Jesus, in the town of Bethany, about two miles from Jerusalem, has raised a man named Lazarus from the dead. There's a family there that Jesus is close with, Lazarus, his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus died, and Jesus literally brings him out of the tomb four days after the fact. And this has caused just a couple of people to believe in him. Understandably so. It's kind of the other side that doesn't make much sense. These religious leaders don't believe. They they see Jesus as a threat. We covered this a lot last time. A threat to their own power, to their own popularity. They they think that if they just let Jesus go on like he's going, he's going to wreck their lives, their priorities, their pleasures. What they enjoy, he's, just, he's, going to wreck, he's going to wreck everything. He's going to wreck their people. And so they decide to kill him. After all, Caiaphas, the high priest, reasons, it's better that one man die than all the people perish, right? When you start to edge your way into sin like this, it never stops with just one like if you go down to verses 9 through 12 of uh, nine, yeah 9 through 12 of chapter 12 we just heard it read just a second ago they decide they don't only have to kill Jesus they also have to kill who Lazarus yeah one man should die instead of okay maybe two they got to kill Lazarus as well because him being alive just the fact that he's alive is evidence that Jesus really is who he claims to be Jesus really is the Christ in fact every christian ever, that includes you, every Christian ever is evidence of the fact that Jesus is the Christ. Because you were spiritually dead and Christ called you from the tomb. You are evidence that he is the resurrection and the life. This is why these chief priests and Pharisees need not only to kill Jesus, but they also need to kill Lazarus. And later they're going to need to kill Stephen. Then after that, they're going to need to kill James. And on and on and on the list of martyrs go all throughout history because a person who has been raised from spiritual death is evidence that Jesus is the Christ. They give off the fragrance of life. They can't help it. But to these religious leaders, this doesn't smell like life. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, the giver of life, it doesn't smell like life to them. Lazarus, who's been raised back to life, that doesn't smell like life to them. As they encounter Christ, as they encounter Lazarus, they smell death. Death to their priorities, their power, their pleasures. They smell death, so they seek death. And as the Passover celebration draws near, everyone's wondering, what will Jesus do? Will he be too scared to come to the feast? But he's not scared. He's sovereign over the very hour of his death. And as the hour of his death draws near, he draws nearer to Jerusalem. 
Let's pick up John chapter 12 and verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany. Remember, about two miles from Jerusalem. He came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So Jesus comes back to Bethany. Why? Back to within two miles of where people want to murder him. He's not scared, sovereign over everything that's about to unfold. But why does he come back to Bethany? Just a week before his own death, he comes back to the place where he raised Lazarus from the dead. Why? I think, I think, perhaps it is because, so far, we have seen one primary reaction to the raising of Lazarus. So far, we have primarily, in this gospel, seen the reaction of the religious leaders. When they encounter Christ who gives life, to them it smells like death. Death to their priorities and pleasures, he's going to wreck their life. And so perhaps, perhaps right here, we're meant to see a different reaction to the raising of Lazarus. So, someone who encounters the life-giving Christ, and yes, he still wrecks their life. He still flips their priorities. He still flips their pleasures. But to them, it isn't ultimately wrecking. It's redeeming. When, when this person encounters Christ, it smells like new life. Perhaps this is what we are meant to see. Last week, we talked a lot about how when you encounter the life-giving Christ, it wrecks your life, flips your priorities and pleasures. And that's great, but what does that look like? Let's put some meat on those bones of truth. What does it look like to have your priorities and your pleasures flipped by, by Christ? I think that's what we're meant to see through Jesus being back in Bethany, not just see it, sense it, smell it. What's the aroma of verses 2 through 8, the fragrance of life or death? Look at verse 2. It says, so they gave a dinner for Jesus there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Jesus shows back up in Bethany. They throw a celebration dinner. It's a thank you dinner for Jesus in honor of him. Thank you for raising Lazarus. I mean, like, it's the least you could do, right? Like, okay, it kind of brought somebody back from the dead. I guess we'll throw a party. No, that's not exactly the attitude here. This is a huge celebration. Verse 9 tells us that large crowds turn out for this, even coming from Jerusalem. I mean, wouldn't you turn out for this? Wouldn't you want to see someone who raised someone from the dead and the guy he raised from the dead both sitting there? They throw this huge public party. The family of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, they, they, they likely would have had to have been wealthy to throw such a party as this. As a matter of fact, what we've seen so far about them in this gospel would seem to indicate that they are a family of some means. I mean, in John 11, when they were mourning, the amount of people that were with them and the distance from which they had traveled to be with them is indicative of a family of some stature and status. The, the fact that they owned the tomb that they could lay their brother Lazarus in is indicative of, of, of wealth, and now they're throwing this huge public party. Probably, 
Likely, a lot of scholars think they're a wealthy family, but that's not blocking their adoration for Christ, like Scripture can warn that wealth does. They're using it to adore Christ. Martha is serving. You're probably most familiar, if you're familiar with Martha, you're probably most familiar with her out of Luke chapter 10, so it makes total sense that she's serving. Nobody's surprised by this. Lazarus is with Jesus at the table. That's where we'd expect him to be. People are coming to see Jesus and and Lazarus. But where is Mary? Verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's a lot of Marys in Scripture. It's easy to get them confused. But this Mary, Mary the sister of Lazarus and Martha, this Mary, every single time she is mentioned, she's at the feet of Jesus. Luke 10, 39, Mary sat at the Lord's feet and listened to him teaching. John 11, verse 32, Mary came to where Jesus was and she fell at his feet. And now John 12 and verse 3, she anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. Where's Mary? At the feet of Jesus, where we would expect her to be. Why? Why is she there? Because her life has been wrecked. Better yet, it's been redeemed by him, by by Christ. She's heard it. She sat at his feet and heard his words. She's fallen at his feet and seen his works as he raised her brother from the dead. She's She's heard his words. She's seen his works. And through both of them, she's encountered him for who he truly is, God in the flesh, the Savior, the resurrection and the life. And her priorities and her pleasures have been flipped. We see what that looks like in verse 3. Four things. I think there are four evidences, four pointers that show us what flipped priorities and pleasures look like. First, the price. The price. John tells us that this pure nard that Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with was an expensive ointment. That's a tiny understatement. This junk was crazy expensive. Like if you go down to verse 5, we find out that it's worth at least 300 denarii, if not more. A denarii, one denarii, is a fair day's wage for a day laborer. All right, 300, that's basically a calendar year minus Sabbaths and feast days. So in other words, it's worth a year's salary. An expensive ointment. This stuff, it, it, it had to be imported. One of the reasons it was so expensive is it had to be imported. It was uh, derived from a, the root and the spike of a nard plant, which grows in northern India. It had to be imported from northern India. And you could get it on the street for cheaper. And streets of Jerusalem, kind of like the streets of New York, you can get Oakley's for 10 bucks. You could get nard for 10 bucks. But we're told that this is pure nard. Like this is verified certificate of authenticity type stuff. It's real. It's 
It's expensive. And even if we talked about how this family is likely wealthy, this is another piece of evidence that they probably were. And even if they are wealthy, this is still ridiculous expensive. It would be a treasured possession. One that they'd purchased, or perhaps it was even a fairly heirloom that had been passed down. Because you don't just use this stuff for anything. You keep it for an important occasion. I mean, don't forget, Mary's brother, Lazarus, had just died not that long ago, and she didn't even break it out then. Like, that's what, that's what Jews do when someone dies. The Jews did not embalm, uh, so a body wouldn't be preserved. So what they would do is they would just anoint it with spices that smelled good, so that while it was in the tomb rotting, it didn't stink. So they would have anointed Lazarus' body with all sorts of smell-good spices. Not this one. Her own brother dies, she's not breaking it out. But now she doesn't just break it out, she breaks it open, according to Mark 14. She breaks it open and uses every last drop. Why? Her priorities and her pleasures have changed. The, the most precious thing she possesses is no longer about herself. It's about Christ. And it is her joy to pour it all out, to use it all on him. Feel the implications of this. Like, like what is your most valued possession? Something that you have, have saved for or maybe you can't even put monetary value on it. Maybe it's like a family heirloom. What, what possession or possessions are, are your priority and your, your pleasure? See in Mary what it looks like to have your priorities and pleasures flipped by Christ. Her, her priority and pleasure is no longer a possession. It's him. How's she going to express that to him? You're worth more than everything else that I have. I'll give everything else that I have. I'll give this, which is emblematic of that which is most precious to me. I'll give it to you to show you what you're worth in my heart and in my life. Her possession, her pleasure, her treasure is no longer stuff. It's him. This, this is the ultimate difference between a believer and a non-believer. The difference is your treasure. What is your greatest pleasure for the believer? The bottom of our joy is no longer ourself. It's Christ. He has become her, her treasure, and so she pours out all that she possesses on Jesus. Does that smell like life or death to you? The thought that all I possess doesn't compare with the worth of Jesus. I give it all to him for his purposes. Does that have the fragrance of life or, or death? Mary's priorities and pleasures were flipped. We see that in the price. Second, we see it in her posture. She's at Jesus' feet. Feet are gross, people. I don't know if you're aware of this. They're gross enough. But let's transport it back to first century Israel where the, these people wear only sandals. They have dirt roads and no indoor plumbing. That means that everything ends up in the street. 
where you walk. Not only that, but if you use any kind of transportation, it poops too. That's in the street. Yeah, feet just got worse. The lowest job in a household that a servant could have was cleaning people's feet. Mary goes beyond cleaning. She anoints the feet of Christ. Normally in celebration, you'd anoint somebody's head, and maybe she did that too. Other passages seem to indicate that she poured it out on his head and his feet. But regardless, she ends up at his his feet. Basically, through her action, declaring, Lord, the lowliest part of you is worthy of the highest gift I possess. The lowliest part of you is worthy of the highest gift I possess. And not just what I possess, she goes beyond that. Not just what I possess, but you are worthy of my whole person. We see that in the third thing, her hair. Her her hair. Mary poured out all the perfume, nearly a pound. It's about 12 ounces or so. So there's excess. That's a lot of perfume. There's, There's excess dripping off the feet of Jesus. But instead of reaching for a towel, she unbinds, uncovers, and unbinds her hair. Now you've got to understand that women in first century Israel did not unbind their hair in public. Ever. You just, you just don't do it. That was a sign of loose morals. It's a kind way to put it. As a matter of fact, there's, there's only one other woman in Scripture that we're aware of that did something like this for Christ. You can read about it in Luke chapter 7. She wet Jesus' feet with her tears and used her hair. And what we're told about that woman is that she was a sinner. In other words, most likely she was a prostitute. This is one of the reasons she would have had unbound hair. Maybe Mary knows about that event. Maybe that's where she gets the idea Either way, she's, she's basically saying, I don't care about what the public association or shame will, will be. She unbinds her, her hair. That, 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 you got to understand, that didn't just indicate loose morals. Like even, even more than that, a woman in this society, her hair was considered her glory, her beauty, best feature. It was her priority and her pleasure. Mary's priorities and pleasures have flipped. She takes what would likely be the cleanest part of her own person and applies it to the dirtiest part of Jesus. Through her action, saying, if, if, if I can use any part of of me, of my own life, if I can use any part of me to magnify, to honor, and to love Christ, I'll do it. Not just all that I possess is yours, but my own person is yours. All that I have and all that I am is is yours. Is this the posture of our hearts? Like, is this the posture of our lives? Not just, like, Not just that what we possess is Christ, that's hard enough, but not just that what we possess is Christ, but we, ourselves, our own person, our lives, are His. All too often we talk about Jesus as if believing in Him means He becomes a part of our life. 
Like we even use phrases like we ask Jesus into our heart. I'm not dogging that phrase like a lot of people do. I'm just saying it can create a concept that little cute Jesus, ask him into my heart. He gets to be a part of me, part of my life. We act like believing in Jesus means he becomes a part of our lives. He's there to be centered on us and to help us with our plans and our purposes and, and to help those things come to fruition. And if he doesn't, we get mad like he's not doing what he's supposed to do. Like, Jesus, I, I got a plan for my career, for my relationships, for whether or not I'm single or married, for my family and having kids. I got, I got a plan. I need you to get on board now that you are part of my life. But the reality is, is that when we put our faith in Christ, he doesn't become a part of our life. We become a part of his. We, we may say that we ask him into our heart, but we become a part of his body, the, the church. We're a part of his purposes, a part of his plans. Our posture becomes that of Mary. Christ, take, take all of me, not just what I possess, but all that I am, and use it for your glory, no matter how inglorious it looks. What Mary's doing looks inglorious. Use me for your glory, no matter how inglorious it looks, even if it means that I use my hair to wash your feet. Question, what's your hair? Like for you, what, what is the most glorious, not thing you possess, no, what, what is the most glorious part of your life? Your, your highest priority, your greatest pleasure. Is it, is it your career and career path? Is it, is it your, your family? Hobbies? Health? Are you willing to use these things to wash the feet of Jesus? Take my health make it look inglorious if it glorifies you. Take my job, make it look inglorious if it glorifies you. Take my life, make it look inglorious if it glorifies you. Are you willing to take the greatest part of you and use it in service of Jesus in the lowliest way imaginable if that will glorify him? This is what it looks like when Christ flips your priorities and your, and your pleasures. Does that have the fragrance of life for you? Or does it smell like death? Mary's priorities and pleasures have flipped. We see that in the price, in her posture. We see it in her hair and forth. We see it in her house. Look at the final words of verse 3. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There was no hiding what just happened. Like everybody knew what, like, like even if people couldn't see it, they could smell it. Everybody there was affected by what Mary had 
had done. And everyone who would encounter her thereafter would continue to be affected. Her hair would smell like that perfume for days, if not weeks. Like everywhere she went, there would be an aroma about her. And, and this is John's point. Mary's priorities and pleasures flipping was not some private affair that just happened in her heart. No, it was evident to all. They could smell it. It was an aroma that testified to Christ's worth. He he was her life. Like, I wonder what is the aroma of, of my life? Like, when people... See, my priorities and my pleasures, do they see Jesus? Does my life emit a scent of of love for, for Christ? Is that the fragrance that fills my home and my career and my school and my relationships and my, my, my job? Is, is, is that the aroma of my life in our current cultural climate? Like, like here... In the States, people are freaking out about everything that's happening, whether you're talking about like on the political scene, the racial tensions, whether you're talking about on the global scale with wars and rumors of wars. Like, like in that cultural climate where, where it feels like everything is so tense, it's just ready to pop, to break at any moment and everybody's on edge and freaking out in that cultural climate does my life emit a fragrance of trust in Christ like yes yes things are happening that can burden my heart absolutely things are happening that we can weep over but do i remain even as i weep and i mourn and i, I move to be active do do we remain calm and confident that we actually know the one who is sovereign over all? Christians don't freak out with the rest of our culture because we have faith in our Christ. Daniel is like my favorite picture in Scripture for that. There's a moment in Daniel's life where the Babylonian empire that he is serving is about to fall. And a hand appears and writes on the wall. Basically, Daniel's called on to interpret the writing. And he says, yeah, that means you're all going down. Persia's about to take over. Daniel's saying this to the most powerful Babylonian king in the world at the time. And he serves Babylon. And they're all freaking out. And Daniel's not. Like his country is about to be invaded and overtaken, ruled by another kingdom. He, as a person in power, would likely be on the top of the hit list to die and be replaced. And he's not freaking out. He has full trust in his God who is sovereign. The fragrance of life amidst a culture of, of death. Is this the fragrance of our lives that we know, trust, and love Jesus. It's the fragrance of Mary's life. And I wonder, as we look at her, as we look at her action and her life, does it smell like life or death to us? Like, like if, 
If you or I, if we'd been in that room, if we'd seen the price she paid, the posture she took, if we'd seen what she did with her hair, and we'd smelled that smell that filled her house, would that have smelled like life to us, life in Christ? Would we have been like, yes, Mary, this is right. Jesus is worth it. He's, he's your priority, your pleasure, your life, and, and, and this smells like life. Or would it have smelled like death? Like, would our heart have been... Mary, what are you doing? You're wasting something of incredible value. You're, you're demoting yourself by sitting at someone's feet and acting like a servant, unbinding your hair, looking like a prostitute. You're, you're a fool using your highest to serve someone's lowest. And, and everybody around you sees this. Mary, this is death to your station. It's death to your reputation. It's, it's death to all that really matters in life. Would we have thought this smells like death. That's exactly what someone in the room thinks. And he speaks up in verses 4 to 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him. If you notice, every time Judas's name appears in Scripture, that phrase is always there. You ever had an event happen in your life with someone, and it reinterprets the way you see everything you experienced before with them. I was at a meal one time with a group of people. My wife and I, we were on a date, and it's a long story, but we were at this table with a bunch of strangers that we didn't know, and this guy's sitting right beside me, and he's talking. He talks to me for like an hour and a half, and it's only an hour and a half after that. He's like, so what do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor, and you could see it. Like he's going back through his entire conversation with me. Everything he's seeing in a different light. I'm like, dude, chill out. It's okay. Like when Judas did this, they had to reinterpret everything they had ever seen before, including this. Look at what John has to say about what unfolds. Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, well, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Here's what John has to say. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas objects. And like, if you don't know what John's saying right here, like if you don't know this background on the surface, it looks like he's objecting for good reasons. I mean, maybe we would even initially be tempted to agree with Judas. I mean, couldn't a lot of good be done from selling this ointment? You could do support a lot of poor people, you could feed a lot of mouths, you could shelter a lot of people. But what Judas says right here is not ultimately about the value of the ointment. It's about the value of Christ. I'll give you an example. My children are suckers for an advertisement. Like good marketing, they're, they're just, they lose it. it. Marketing constantly tempts my children to spend what little bit of money they have to call their own on total incomplete junk. Like whether it's cheap toys that I know will break quickly or whether it's something that they'll only play with for a moment because it doesn't have a lasting entertainment value. Like whatever it is, I find myself constantly having to discourage them from wasting their money on cheap thrills. I discourage them from that, and I have to encourage them to save it, to keep it for something I know that they really want, something that 
that will be of greater value, greater quality, longer lasting fun. And so when I, when I discourage them from buying the cheap thing and encourage them to save their money, my words do not really reveal how much I value money. They reveal how little I value the thing they want to spend it on. I think it's the same with the words of Judas. His words don't reveal how much he values helping the poor, but how little he values Christ. Like in Judas's mind, it's not that the ointment shouldn't be used. It just shouldn't be used on Jesus. It's worth more than that. What a waste. Like pull that into your, your own life. It's, it's, it's not that your career and your talents and your relationships and your possessions and your life shouldn't be used, just not for Jesus. That's a waste. That's what Judas is saying. Because, I mean, Jesus might call you to use all of that. He might call you to use your life. He might call you to do something that gets no recognition, no fame. No one will remember who you are or your name. And you've got more talent and more gifts than that. Don't waste your life on Christ. Spend it on yourself. That's at the heart of Judas's words. He doesn't care about the poor. He's wishing that the ointment could be sold, the money put in the money bag that they all share, that he watches over, so he can use it for himself every now and then. Judas doesn't value Jesus because he values Judas. Jesus isn't worth 300 denarii to him. We'll find out to Judas, Jesus is only worth about 30 pieces of silver. What's Jesus worth to you? What's he worth to me? Like Mary, is he worth all we possess and all that we are, our lives? Christ, if you want to take my life and use it in death, fine, you're worth my life. Let me tell you, Shades, I'd love to see, I'd love to walk my girls down the aisle. I'd love to see my grandkids. I'd love to grow old with Holly. I'd love to do all those things. But if Christ wants my life to take it and to use it for his glory, that's worth more. It's worth more. For me to live is Christ. To die. Gain. Does that smell like life to you? Or like death? Judas smells this ointment fill the air, and to him it smells like death. Death of an opportunity for him to help himself. Jesus has something to say to him. Look at verses 7 and 8, final two verses. Jesus said to Judas, leave her alone. Leave her alone so that she may keep it, save it, guard it. Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
Now hear me, Jesus is not devaluing the poor right here. I think the rest of his life makes that utterly clear. He's not devaluing the poor. He's revealing that Judas is devaluing him. Like Judas, if you really care about the poor, that's awesome. You've got the rest of your life to show it. But me, in the flesh, amongst you, this moment is coming to a close. This, this moment is lasting for a limited time. So Judas, you don't get to take the ointment for the poor, really for yourself. No, leave Mary alone and let her keep the ointment to show the world my value. Even as you devalue me, and even as the world will devalue me, let her keep it to show my value. I think that's the essence of what Jesus means when he says, let her keep it for the day of my burial. In other words, his burial's coming in six days. Like in six days, he's going to be laid out dead. Why? Because Judas will devalue him, and the world along with Judas will devalue him. But Mary has seen the value of Christ. She's testified to it. And in just six days, her testimony will still stand. Like as Jesus' body is laid out to be buried and anointed again, remember that's what Jews do to prepare bodies for burial, as it is anointed again, who wouldn't recall this anointing? Who wouldn't, in light of Jesus now being dead, think poor Mary with her misplaced faith and she wasted her ointment on this supposed Savior who's just died? Surely now she knows that it's a fragrance of death. I mean, anytime she smells it, smells that smell again, remember, it's probably still in her hair. Anytime she smells it, it's going to remind her of her Savior who died. Truly now it's the smell of death. And maybe that would be true if not for the fact that three days later Christ stepped forth from the tomb alive forevermore. So that now when Mary smells the slightest scent of pure nard, it smells like life, everlasting, resurrected life. Resurrection and life. She's seen it proven through Christ twice. Like, even as Judas and the world devalued Christ, she saw him as worthy of her life. The world still does this around us, devalues Christ. As the world devalues Christ, says it's a waste to pour our lives out to him, do you still see his worth and his value? Does does giving your life to Christ, all you possess and all that you are, still smell like, like life? Or does that smell like death? To have your priorities and your pleasures flipped, to pour out yourself, is that the fragrance of life or, or death? The world will tell you it smells like death. It's a waste. Your boss may tell you that it's a waste. Your own family may tell you that it's a waste. I met with a young man not a week ago been attending Shades for about four or five years. He's moving. He's being sent out. He wants to dedicate his life to sharing the gospel with college students. And his family is telling him, that's a waste. Why? In light of his talents and the kind of career he could have, the kind of money he could make, the security he could offer his future family that they expect him to have. In light of all of that, his current plans smell like death to them. 
death of all his potential, death of all his worth, because he's going to use his life on something that they perceive as inglorious. But he smells life. He, he's put himself in a posture to, to pour out all that he possesses, even himself, so that his life gives off a fragrance of the value of Christ. When we do that, yes, to some, to many, it will smell like death, and to others it will smell like life. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 promises much. It says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. In other words, many look at lives where, where Christ has flipped someone's priorities and pleasures And they think of it as a life that's been wrecked, a life that smells like death. But that thinking will lead ultimately to their own death without Christ. Yet for those who look at a life that Christ has flipped, their priorities and their pleasures, and they don't see it as wrecked, but they see it as redeemed, that to them smells like true life, and it will ultimately lead them to life. To one, it's a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. What is the fragrance of Mary's life to you, to me? The price, the posture, her hair, her house, is this all a fragrance of life or death? What do you, what do you want the fragrance of your own life to be? Your possessions, your posture, your own person, your, your whole life, does it give off the aroma of the glory of Christ. To you, is this the fragrance, this gospel, this Christ, this Jesus, this call? Is it the fragrance of life or death?